0: Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 1 through 22. 33, 1 through 22. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them, and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land, and blows the trumpet, and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself, but if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any of one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus have, have you said, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? And you, son of man, say to your people, The righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him when he transgresses, and as for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall by it when he he turns from his wickedness. And the righteous shall be not able to live by his righteousness when he sins. Though I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, yet if he trusts in his righteousness and does injustice, none of his righteous deeds shall be remembered. But in his injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, though I say to the wicked, You shall surely die, yet if he turns from his sin and does what is just and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has taken by robbery, walks in the statutes of life, not doing injustice, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the sins that he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is just and right. He shall surely live. Yet your people say, The way of the Lord is not just, when it is their own way that is not just. When the righteous turns from from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. And when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he shall live by this. Yet you say, The way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, I will judge each of you according to his ways." Now we're going to continue the rest of the chapter in a little bit, but we're going to take some time right now to break down these verses. I don't know how many of you caught verse 1 and verse 2 and how interesting it is for those of us who have been in our study. It says, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, speak to your people and say to them. Let me ask you a question. Why is that? Why does that sound weird right now? He's been made mute. Remember, he has been struck mute by God. He's not been allowed to speak to the people of Israel. During the three-year siege of Jerusalem, from the time that it was begun until the time that the walls and the city were destroyed, he was unable to speak. And he wouldn't be allowed to speak until that day that he gets word, the Scripture says, that Jerusalem has been defeated. Yet here we see that he says God tells him to speak. Well, let's jump over to chapter 33, verses 21 and 22 real quick. He says, in the 12th year of our exile, in the 10th month, on the fifth day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has been struck down. Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me the evening before the fugitive came, and he had opened my mouth by the time the man came to me in the morning. So my mouth was open and I was no longer mute. So our answer to our question is here in verses 21 and 22. Yes, he was mute until the time that he heard. But what had happened the night before the fugitive came and gave him the word? The Lord had opened his mouth. So we know now that chapter 33 verses 1 and following are God speaking to him the night before. i got a message for you to speak to him. And God opened his mouth to speak to the Jews at that time. Now chapter 33 is a transitional chapter in this book. It's between the warnings to Israel and the nations in chapters 1 through 32 and also between that and the promise of Israel's future restoration in chapter 34 and the rest of the chapter. As you're going to see when we get back together next time, chapter 34 on is going to be about Israel's future restoration and all the things God's going to do and His promises, and most of those promises have not yet been fulfilled, and we're going to look at some things that God said He's going to be doing in the land of Israel in the rest of our study in Ezekiel, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Also, chapter 33 is a call for national repentance after the destruction of Jerusalem. Remember, God's opened his mouth after the city has been destroyed, but we still see him calling them to repent in this section of scripture that we've just just read. So in chapter 33, 1 through 9, we see God had called Ezekiel to be a watchman on the wall to the people of Israel about the judgment or the sword that came from God against Israel. Now, a lot of you might not remember this because we've been in Ezekiel for a while. This is actually almost word for word, what God had already told Ezekiel back in Ezekiel chapter 3. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 3. In Ezekiel 3, we'll start in verse 16. It says, And at the end of the seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way, in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or turn or from his wicked way, he shall surely die for his iniquity. But you will be delivered; you will have, will have delivered your soul. Again, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die because you have not warned him. He shall die for his sin and his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered. But his blood will I will require at your hand. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning and you will have delivered your soul. Does that sound a little familiar? That's almost word for word what we have in chapter 33. And we're going to be breaking it down in a little bit. But what I want you to hear first off is this. In the same way in which God told Ezekiel in the beginning of this message, in the beginning of this book to the people of Israel, and that how he was set them him as a watchman over the house of Israel and he was to give them warning of the coming judgment. Why does God give warning of coming judgment? What is his purpose to give a warning? Repentance. He desires repentance. Think about the message through Jonah. Forty days and the city will be destroyed. What was the purpose of God saying 40 days and I'm going to wipe you all out? His desire is that they would repent. When the people of that city did repent from the king all the way down to the animals, God did not bring the judgment because the purpose of the the warning accomplished its purpose. In chapter 3, we see that God says to him, look, I'm going to use you as a watchman. I want you to tell them that the sword's coming. You need to let them know that it's coming. If they listen or don't listen, that's between them and me. But you are responsible to tell them." But now in chapter 33, God says the same thing to him again after the judgment has already happened, after the city of Jerusalem has been destroyed, after many people have been killed, after many have been carried into exile into Babylon, after others, as you're going to see a little bit later, are still left in the land or others have been scattered to other nations. Why is God saying to Ezekiel now, when the judgment's already come, I'm going to set you as a watchman? Yeah, the opportunity to repent is still there. The people that had been spared the judgment were spared the judgment by the grace of God, but they still, too, need to repent, or else it'll still keep coming. And I want you to understand the heart of God, how merciful it is. And the Bible says His mercy is new every morning. God is always wanting for us to repent. God's always going to give us opportunity to turn from our wicked ways, if you will. Now, even though corporate Israel Would always exist. The repentance and salvation would occur on an individual basis. Go with me to Jeremiah 31. In Jeremiah 31, I just want you to see verses 35 through 37. And I just want to lay a foundation for you. That when God talks about judging Israel, corporate Israel will always exist. God will never, ever, ever, ever totally wipe the nation of Israel off the face of the earth. Jeremiah 31. Verses 35 through 37. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off, the off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. So in other words, God said, look, is Israel ever going to be wiped out? Never. There's always been a remnant. The Bible teaches us that in Romans chapter 11. God himself said, I will make an end of many nations, but I'll never make a full end of you. God had always said that the nation of Israel would always exist. Yet, when he talks of judgment, all along it had always been He was judging the nation, yet he was really judging individuals. Go back to chapter 33 and look at verses 1 through 9 again. And I want you to notice the tense and the prepositions. The Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people... Then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and take who? Him. it's Not them. It's him away. His blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and didn't take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But he, if he, he had taken warning, he would have saved his life and if, but if the watchman sees the sword coming and doesn't blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I'll require at the watchman's hand. So I want you to see that even though national Israel is being judged, national Israel will always exist. But actually, the judgment is on an individual basis. And look again at verse 20. Yet, oh you, you say the way the Lord is not just, O house of Israel... I will judge each of you according to his ways." So listen closely to what I'm saying to you. You've been hearing me say over and over through this study that there's a lot that the United States can learn from what God's been saying to the nations, to the nation of Israel. There's a lot about who he is and his character and his judgment and when he brings judgment and why he brings judgment. And there's a lot that we have seen, parallels with who we are. And God has every right to wipe us out as a nation, to bring a judgment on us. And I think in many ways it has already begun, which we don't have time to get into tonight. But please hear this. As God deals with the United States of America, don't think for a second that you're going to get swept up and unfairly, this is what the nation of Israel was saying, God's ways are unjust. Don't think that you would unfairly, well, I, I'm not as guilty as our nation. I'm not as guilty. If God's going to judge our nation because all those wicked people, I didn't vote that way. I voted right ways. And and, and, and if I get taken in this judgment of the United States, that's not fair. Oh, don't miss this. God hasn't promised that there will always be the United States of America, first off, like he has the nation of Israel. But as in every situation, if you're taken in judgment, you'll be dealt with for your own sin and your own iniquity. Now, at the same time, aren't we grateful for the fact that those of us who are in Christ will not be judged for our iniquity? But now, also, don't miss this. This section here with the warning isn't really talking as much about being saved or lost. We hear about the righteousness and turning from this righteousness and all this kind of stuff. In the context here, it's dealing with physical consequences for sin. I thought about going down that road tonight and walking you through how the Bible teaches, even for believers... There's physical consequences for perpetual sin. You know in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the scripture says that because people were taking the Lord's Supper incorrectly, some were sick and some had died. We know that Ananias and Sapphira most likely were very much a part of the church. It wasn't easy to be a part of the church back in that day. People were very rarely willing to join them because of the persecution and all. Ananias and Sapphira were a part of the church. But when they lied and acted like the amount of money they got, And gave to the church was the whole amount they had received for the land. What did God do to both of them? He took them home early. And the Bible teaches us in the book of 1 John that there is such a thing as a sin unto death. So understand that Ezekiel is being told, I'm sending you as a watchman over the house of Israel. You warn them when I say judgment is coming because of iniquity and because of sin. If You don't warn them, their blood's going to be on your head. And we'll get to that in just a second. But what I want you to hear is simply this. Don't ever think for a second that as God judges our nation, and you may get caught up in it, that it's unfair. He knows every single individual. He knows every single case. And if your heart is where it belongs and you're seeking him, he will take care of you, whatever that looks like and whatever that means. Does that mean that you won't have consequences because you live in this nation when he judges it? No. Daniel was a righteous man, but he was taken captive. Ezekiel was. He was taken captive. Jeremiah went through a whole lot of stuff. He actually stayed in the land. He wasn't taken captive. But he might have thought it had been easier to be taken captive half of the stuff that he went through in the, in the land of Israel. But keep in your mind this. God is watching the individual. And he knows, he knows what's going on in each individual life. Now, if the Bible says that God told Ezekiel, I've made you as a watchman over the people of Israel, and the house of Israel, and if you don't warn them, their blood's going to be on your head. Imagine the amount of responsibility that Jonah would have had if he hadn't responded to God's grace and actually and hadn't preached to the people of Nineveh. Let that sink in for a minute. He had been told, I want you to go and warn them of the judgment coming. And what was, what was Jonah's response? He didn't just say no. He said, heck no. He went in the other direction, but God in his mercy orchestrated events to get him where he wanted him to be. And aren't we grateful? And I'm sure Jonah's grateful for God's mercy because he would have been responsible for the blood of all of those people had he not told them. Now, I want to go down a road tonight that's a little bit. If you're willing to stick with me, it'll it'll make some sense. But for some, you might get lost, so I want you to stick with me here. So I guess what I'm asking you to do is, whatever you got to do to get yourself ready for this, I'm going to ask you a tough biblical question. I don't want you answering from your first, well, I think, remember we've been talking about that, too many people, including preachers today, are answering questions from the Bible with their opinion from a verse. If you're going to build a doctrine or theology, you need to build it from the whole of Scripture, not from a verse. So here's the tough question. Is this being accountable for people's blood, something for all of us, or only for the prophets? Is this being accountable for people's blood, for all of us, or only for the prophets? Oh, God said to Cain. All right. Yeah. The blood cries out. Yeah. Okay. One more... More righteous than kings is Jesus. Right. I'm going to help you out, and then I'm going to walk you through it. The answer is, yes, it's for all of us, but wait, not on the level of a prophet. I'm going to say that again. The answer is yes. Being accountable for people's blood is for all of us, yet, not on the level of a prophet. Go with me to James chapter three. I'm going to give you a bunch of scriptures that kind of lay this out for us. In James chapter 3, look at verse 1. It says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So here we see very clearly that there's levels of responsibility. Is God going to judge everyone at the same level? With measuring how much responsibility they had, no, the Bible is very clear. Those of us who preach and teach will be judged with a higher level of accountability and responsibility. So first and foremost, God is not expecting you to tell everybody in the whole world, or else your their blood is going to be on your head. And not only that, some of you were never called by God to be a preacher or a teacher. Those who have been called to be a preacher and teacher will be held in stricter accountability and a higher sense of judgment. Any idea why? Because we've been given more people that we're to speak to. So God expects you, some to speak to more people. God expects some to speak to less people. Well, you actually see that in Matthew 25. Go to Matthew chapter 25. Look at verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. Hopefully we know the parable of the talents. And here we see very clearly he gave one five talents, another two and another one, each according to their ability. And when they came back and he reckoned with each of them, the one that had the five, God by his grace had multiplied it to ten. And God says, well done, good and faithful servant, come on. And then the one that had the two had turned it into four. And what does God say? Well, where's the ten? No, he says, well done, because God hadn't expected of him as much as somebody else. Folks, I want you to be set free tonight. I don't want you to think that you're not responsible, that you're not supposed to tell people about Jesus, but I want you to understand first and foremost, God has never expected you to tell everybody about Jesus, and He's not expected you to tell as many people as the person maybe next to you. The Bible's very clear, and I'm going to show you some more, that there's different levels of responsibility and accountability before God according to what He has for each of us to do. Go to Romans chapter 12. Start in verse 3. Paul says, For by the grace given to me, in other words, the responsibility God's given me, I say to every one among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we all have many members, or many parts, and the parts don't all have the same function, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually parts one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, having the gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if it's prophecy in proportion to our faith. If service in our serving and the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, Look closely. He says, just like in your body, you have all different parts and they all don't have the same responsibility in the same way it is with Christ. And not only that, if your gift is prophecy or preaching, you need to preach in accordance with the measure of faith that God's given you. In other words, are there some that God has called to preach to millions? Has he called every preacher to preach to millions? We need to be understanding that just because you're a preacher, you shouldn't be comparing yourself with other preachers and the size of their congregation or how many people they preach to. There are those that have been called by God to pastor a small flock in the country of Tennessee somewhere, in the woods of Tennessee, and they are to be faithful with what it is that God's called them to do. But we have to be real careful because without realizing it, and the reason we've done this is because most of our preaching over the years has been man-centered, man's energy, man's effort, Guilt, shame, condemnation, if I can make you feel bad, maybe you'll get off your butt and work harder. That kind of preaching that doesn't understand the power of God to do His work. We have said over the years, Jesus said, go on to all the world and make disciples in Matthew 28. And don't we hear it kind of like, you all need to be going on to all the world. Well, I'm going to blow that up in a second here from the scriptures. Now, as our pastor at our home church pointed out a couple of weeks ago, That message of Matthew 28 wasn't just to those disciples either. It was to us as well, because he said, Lo, I'm with you even to the very end of the age. Did Jesus know those disciples weren't going to make it to the end of the age? So that message was to carry on to us. But that same message he gave to them, he said, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts of of the world. Now, did he expect every one of those guys to do all of those stops? Not from the scriptures. Go to Acts chapter 20. Actually, let me do something else first. Go to Matthew 10. Go to Matthew chapter 10, then we'll go to Acts 20. Look at verses 5 through 15. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons you receive without paying, give without pay, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy at it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your word, shake the dust off your feet from, from uh, when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. When Jesus sent out his disciples two by two to go preach the gospel and to preach the message of the kingdom, did he want them to go to everybody? In this instance, he said, no, I only want you to go to the lost sheep of Israel. So be careful. We don't think for a second that uh, it's just we're supposed to tell everybody. No, everybody's supposed to be told. But when God says and how God says and in God's timing and in God's way without realizing it, these guys could have not done the work of God by saying, well, doesn't he care about the Gentiles, too? Doesn't he care about the Samaritans too? I know he said only go to the lost sheep of Israel, but guys, let's, let's talk for a second here. Don't you think that he, we should get this message to the nations around? And they would have been disobedient. Did you hear me? They would have been disobedient in their wisdom, trying to come up with a better plan to reach everybody. Only if God's told you to reach everybody. Go back to Acts chapter 20. Look at verses 24 through 27. Acts chapter 20, verse 24. Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders that he's met, and my lead is to say goodbye to him, and he says, "I don't account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus." To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none among you whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Did you catch that? He said, I have been living out the role and the plan that God has for my life. And I'm innocent of the blood of everybody that I've spoke to because everywhere that God sent me, I haven't been unfaithful. I've been faithful to preach everything he said to say to everybody he sent me to. Now you say, wait a minute, uh, what was, who were the people he was sent to? We'll go to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Look at verses 7 through 9. Paul says, On the contrary, when they saw, this is the church, the church leaders in Jerusalem, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that's the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be the pillars, received the grace that was given to me, or perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. I'm sorry, I was in chapter 2, and I I, and I just I thought sure you guys could have re- followed my brain here. I need to change a note a number in my note. It says 1, but it's Galatians 2. All right, let's start again. Galatians chapter 2. Verses 7 through 9, and, and it'll make a whole lot more sense. Galatians chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. Paul said, On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, like I just said, he they, they had been, he'd been talking to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me from mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that's, that's Peter, And John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Do you see it? There was, for Paul, by the way, how did Paul feel about the Jews? Did he want them to be saved? Romans chapter 9 and 10 and 11, he goes into great detail. He even says, if I could go to hell and my people of Israel be saved, I'd do it. But God hadn't called him to go preach to the Jews. God had called him to preach to the Gentiles, and he had called Peter to preach to the Jews. Folks, do you even hear what I'm saying? God might even choose that you're to go to a specific people group. That's one of the things that I've sensed in my life, in the call in my life, is I've been overseas. I've been to 15 different countries in the years that I've preached. And I go when God leads me to. I get lots of opportunities to preach overseas, and I turn most of them down because they're not really of what God has for me, because what God's put on my heart and the burden he's put on my heart is to speak to the church in America to get them ready for the return of Jesus Christ and to get back to the word and what it means to be led of the spirit. And my heart's call is speak to the Christian church in the United States. If he sends me overseas, I'll do it. But a lot of times that I get invites to do that, I sense that it's not of God. Years ago, Vance Habner said, Some of you remember who Vance Habner was, a traveling preacher for 70 something years. And he would get invites all across the country. And he thought that he was supposed to go to every place that he was invited because his thinking was, well, Satan would never want me to go preach the gospel somewhere. So if I'm being invited, it must be from God. And then one day he realized that he had an invite to preach in Boston and an invite to preach in California on the exact same day. And it was impossible for both to be accomplished. And all of a sudden he realized, Maybe Satan might invite me to preach someplace where God doesn't want me because God wants me, say, in Boston, and Satan invites me to California. Do you understand what I'm saying? We need to be sensitive to the fact that there are those that God's put on our heart. There are those that God wants us to minister to. For some of you grandmas out there, it might just be your grandkids. It might be your children. It might be your neighbors. But here's the thing. Don't fall into the trap that paralyzes us with fear of thinking that we're responsible to go to everybody because the Bible does not teach that. Let me give you another example. Go to Matthew chapter 19. Look at verses 28 and 29. Matthew chapter 19, verses 28 and 29. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who will have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Did you catch that? Anybody that in their response to God's call in their life has left family and children and land for his sake, they'll be rewarded a hundredfold for their willingness to leave the comforts of home and to go overseas or to go wherever he's called them. Go to Mark. Chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. Jesus has just healed this man who has a legion of demons. In verse 18 of Mark chapter 5, as he, Jesus, was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might go with him. And he did not permit him, but told him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So which is it, folks? Jesus says, I'm going to reward a hundredfold those who leave home and go preach the gospel. But then he tells the demoniac, I want you to go home. Which is it? Both. All of it. It's Boston. Is that what you're saying? Here's the deal. Does God expect that certain people's blood will be on our head? Yes. If God's asked you to share with them. Somehow, some way, he will hold you accountable for what he's asked you to do. Yet, don't think for a second that God's expecting you to talk to as many people as he talked, expects others to talk to. You find where God's put it on your heart. You be sensitive to the Spirit. You speak up when you are supposed to. And just like we learned from Jonah... Anybody here ever chickened out when God told them to talk to somebody? He gives second chances. He gives second chances. And so I want you to understand, Ezekiel, back in chapter 33, was told, I have set you as a watchman over who? Over the house of Israel. Not over everybody. Over the house of Israel. Now, let's go back to our study in chapter 33. Verses 10 through 20 of chapter 33 are another specific call of God to repentance. And he says, And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus you have said, Surely our transgressions, our sins are upon us, and we can, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, As I declare as the Lord God, I have no desire in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? And you, O son of man, say to your people, The righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him when he transgresses. And for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall by it when he turns from his wickedness. And the righteous shall not be able to live by his righteousness when he sins. Though I say to the righteous, he shall surely live. Yet if he trusts in his righteousness and does injustice, none of his righteous deeds shall be remembered. But as in his injustice, that he, he says done, he shall die. Again, though I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, yet if he turns from his sin and does what is just and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what is taken by robbery, and walks in the statutes of life, not doing injustice, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the sins that he's committed shall be remembered against him. He's done what is just and right, and he shall surely live. Now, as you read this, there's two things I want to pull out. One is simply this God's showing the depth. Of how God brings this wonderful gift of salvation. He says, look, if you're a righteous person, yet you turn from your righteousness, all your righteous deeds aren't going to help you. Yet if you're a wicked person and you turn from your wickedness and do right. I'm going to see that. So what's God noticing? Has anybody caught it yet? What's God noticing in all this? Which direction we go? obedience are you repentant and coming to him or are you turning away he responds to how we act and on top of that though what i also want you to see is that they felt like they had no hope and god's saying to them, look i have no pleasure in the death of the wicked i have no pleasure in the death of anyone so turn and live (laughs) but Physical judgment had come because of sin, but those who had been spared death in the judgment of the nation need not give up hope, nor think they were in the clear. Did you catch that? He's speaking to the people that are left after the judgment. This is after the Jerusalem's fallen. People have been dragged off. As you're about to see tonight, there's people that are still left in the city. Or not the city, but in, in, the, in the area of Judah. He's speaking to them, and he's saying, look, you might have been spared the judgment. Don't first and think there's no hope for us. And don't think for a second you're in the clear. Just like I dealt with the nation and the judgments come, don't think, whew, glad that's over, because you still need to be right before me. Now, one could try to build a case for works salvation from this section that I just read to you. If someone wanted to, they could take these verses and try to build a case for how you can be saved by doing right and doing good things. But here's the deal. The whole of Scripture shows that salvation comes not by works, but by faith alone in God's provision for man's sin. Through the Holy Scripture, we see that. But I want to kind of lay this out for you in an interesting way. Go with me to Romans chapter 2. Now, we already know on this side of the cross the name of God's provision for man's sin. We know it's Jesus. But in Romans chapter 2, I want you to read along with me and notice how it reads almost word for word like Ezekiel 33. Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 1. "...therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you can judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance?" But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. Does that sound familiar? That's Ezekiel 33, verse 20, folks. Those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, also to the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. So here he's saying, if you do good, you'll be right, you'll be saved. If you do bad, you'll be, you, you won't be. Sounds like works salvation, doesn't it? Keep reading. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who don't even have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Don't miss that. He says, by the way, for the Gentiles who have never heard the law of God, he's written his law in their hearts. And anybody out there, they might not agree on what's right and wrong with you and I, but if you ask anybody, they're all, everybody has a sense of right and wrong. Every one of them are born with a sense of right and wrong. It's interesting. You'll see murderers, and mass murderers in prison, who will find out that someone else in prison was a child abuser. And they will beat the tar out of that person, because in their minds, mass murderers say, "I would. that's horrible, I can't believe he would do such a thing. Let me ask you a question, those of you that have a sense of right and wrong. Have you ever done or gone against what you sense was right and wrong? Whether you ever heard the law of God or not, he's shown you in your heart that you're a lawbreaker through your conscience. And then he goes, he's gonna judge the secrets of everybody, don't miss this, by Christ Jesus. What about those who have never heard? We've wasted so much time in Sunday school arguing over stuff the Bible says ain't gonna happen. Everybody hears in some way, shape, or form, and God will judge everyone's secrets through Jesus Christ. He's been speaking to their hearts. He's been speaking to their consciences. He's been speaking to Muslims in dreams. He's doing all sorts of things to get people's attention. He's able to get His Word and everyone hears. Don't waste any time arguing about what, those, what about those who have never heard. They all hear in some way, shape, or form. But, he says, if you call, verse 17, you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of the God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code in circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, By the Spirit and not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Don't miss this. Circumcision was just a picture of being set apart for God. And God says circumcision is really a matter of the heart. And it's of the Spirit, not of the letter. So, if someone is resting in their righteousness, as we read in Ezekiel 33, but still does things that are sin. They're a pretty good person. They're pretty righteous, and they're resting in their righteousness. They still do sin. What does the Bible say is their spiritual condition before God? Their righteousness won't help them at all. We read that in Ezekiel 33. Remember James chapter 2, verse 10. If you're able to keep the whole law, yet stumble at just one point, you're guilty as if you broke it all. Yet don't think for a second that if you've done wickedness, it's too late for you. If you're willing to repent and turn from your wickedness, God will grant you righteousness. Oh, well, we've got to keep reading to find out how. We've already seen here that it's of the Spirit, not of how good we are. What advantage then, chapter 3? What advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? Well, much in every way, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And he goes on and he deals with the fact that the Jews actually have an advantage. They've heard the law of God. They've had a lot more revealed to them. But now jump down to verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one, none is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks for God. All have sinned. i oh, sorry, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of Asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. By the way, was Paul just sharing his opinion of how bad they were? Look closely, how do we know that, that from our Bibles that he wasn't just sharing his opinion? He's quoting the Old Testament. You see how it's marked in your Bible? He's quoting from the Old Testament. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, listen closely, for by the works of the law no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Do you see it? The scripture says and has been laying out and what God was doing in Ezekiel is he was showing them prior to the cross. If you're a righteous person and you rest in your righteousness, but you just sin, all your righteousness ain't going to do you any good. Yet if you're a wicked person, don't give up hope, because if you're willing to turn to righteousness, there's hope. Now, let's just put yourself in a situation or in the mindset of a person who was a Jewish person wanting to do right before God. And they hear, you know what, don't rest in your righteousness. If you've committed sin, that's gonna, I'm going to see you as a sinful person. And you're going to be judged for your wickedness. And that person then says, oh, dip, well, I'm going to start being righteous. Because he said, if I can turn from my wickedness and turn to righteousness, then I'll be considered righteous. By the way, how do you think they're going to do? And if you tried to be righteous before God, Any of you who have been saved already and redeemed and been given the spirit of God and now have the power to say no to sin, do you still struggle with sin? That's why Jesus said to the woman caught in the act of adultery, go and sin no more. What he was really saying was, good luck. Actually, I need you to realize that you can't stop sinning. Because once you realize you can't stop sinning, now you're ready for a Savior. The Bible says that no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Yet through the law, we become conscious of sin Why is God, through Ezekiel, telling him to tell the people in Israel, hey, stop resting in your righteousness, because if you sin, you're considered wicked. Oh, by the way, and if you're wicked, and you turn and just do righteousness, you'll be all right. What was he doing? He was giving them the law, in a sense saying, go and try and not sin. But they'll come to a point where they realize, I can't, I can't. Now you're ready for the good news. God's provision for your sin has already been accomplished through Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved. By faith, not of works. It's a gift of God, so no one can boast. I'm righteous, not because I live a righteous life. I'm righteous because I've been declared righteous through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. And I thank God for his law that showed me that I couldn't be righteous. The the law of God drove me to try to become righteous, and it showed me I couldn't. But the good news is, it helped me realize my sinfulness and my need of a savior. All Ezekiel is doing is giving them the law, saying, good luck, give it a shot. You wanna be spared the judgment? Start living right. You wanna rest in your righteousness? You commit one sin, you lost all your righteousness. And all he was doing was giving them the law so they'd be ready to respond. By the way, that's all we're supposed to do. We're to just tell people, look, God will give righteousness to anybody that's righteous. God will take into heaven anybody that's sinless. You think you're good enough before God? The Bible says here are the Ten Commandments. Try and go a week without committing one. Oh, by the way, if you've lusted after a woman, you've committed adultery. By the way, if you've gotten angry at your brother, you've committed murder. It's deeper than that. You're starting to say something. It's from the very beginning of Scripture. Love. Um, and we, especially in society today, um, and, and we make so many excuses. Well, I'm not as bad as yeah. her, you know, and I'm not this and I'm not that, and no, they made me do it. Nobody accepts personal responsibility. And God, through His whole scripture, is saying, hey, it's about you and me yeah. and being accountable, and it's okay. Because once I can realize that I am accountable for my thoughts, my choices, my actions, I fall short. It's like you said, I, I recognize that need for the Savior, that I can open my heart to his love, to receive that, to walk in his righteousness, Right. that we stumble and fall. On, on these days now that I'm righteous or acting in righteousness, it ain't me. Exactly. It's him. That's a great point. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 33 and look at verses uh, 23 through 33, the end of the chapter here. In chapter 33, verse 23, The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, the inhabitants of these waste places in the land of Israel. Keep saying, Abraham was only one man, yet he got possession of the land. But we are many, and the land is surely given to us to possess. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord God, You eat flesh with the blood, and lift up your eyes to idols and shed blood. Shall you then possess the land? You rely on the sword, you commit abominations, and each of you defiled his neighbor's wife. Shall you then possess the land? Say this to them, Thus says the Lord God, As I live, surely those who are in the waste places shall fall by the sword, and whoever is in the open field I will give to the beasts to be devoured. And those who are in strongholds and caves shall die by pestilence. And I will make the land a desolation and a waste, and her proud might shall come to an end. And the mountains of Israel shall be so desolate that none will pass through. Then they will know that I am the Lord, when I have made the land a desolation and a waste because of all their abominations that they have committed. As for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of their houses, say to one another, each to his brother, come, hear what the word is that is from the Lord. And they come to you as as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act, and their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. When this comes, and it will come, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. Now, interestingly enough, if you remember, and I'm going to show you real quickly that that's the case, when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed and everybody was taken captive, there were the poor of the land who were left in Judah. There were anybody left in the city, but in the area, land of Judah, there were some poor who were left in the land. Let me show you real quick. Go to Jeremiah 39. Jeremiah 39, verses 1 and following. It says, In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, a breach was made in the city. And then it goes on and lists how the city was destroyed. Now look at verse 10. I will go to verse 9. Then Nebuchadnezzar Dan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile to Babylon the rest of the people who were left in the city, those who had deserted to him, and the people who remained. Nebuchadnezzar Dan, the captain of the guard, left in the land of Judah, though, some of the poor people who owned nothing, and he gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. So the city of Jerusalem was emptied out, taken into captivity or killed, but there were some people that were still left in the land of Judah, the poorest, and they were left in the land. Ezekiel 33, we see God says to Ezekiel, you speak to the people of Judah that are still in the waste places and still in the land. I know what you're thinking. They were saying, he said, Abraham was only one man and God gave him this land. We're many people. Surely this land is ours now. And God says, am I going to leave you in the land? You guys are still worshiping idols. You're still defrauding your neighbor's wives. You're still stealing from each other. and You're still committing these sins, this unrighteousness, this wickedness that I'm going to judge. So because you think you're going to be in the land now because you've been left in it and that surely it's going to be given to you, just listen to me. You will be scattered. You will be sent off. The land will be desolate. Now, God had said to them, I'm going to scatter you from the land as well because he had promised to give the land Seventy years of rest. Now, I'm going to give you some scriptures to write down because time-wise, we don't have time to to finish this and have me read read them all to you. So I want you to write some of these down. If you were to go to Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 9 through 11, I want you to see that. You're in Jeremiah 39. Just back up to chapter 29, verses 9. Let's just do 9 and 10. uh, No, sorry, 25. Thank you. I'm glad you're listening. I'm not. 25, 9 through 11. We'll go 9 through 11 in chapter 25. In verse 9, Behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon, my servant, and I'll bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I'll devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp, this whole land, shall become a ruin and a waste, and the nation shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Did you catch that? This whole land, he said, is going to become a waste. But what happened was, when Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed Jerusalem, he left some people in the land. But those people said, hey, the land's ours. And God said, no, you're still not living righteously. I'm not leaving you in the land. You're going to be removed. Because I said already, I prophesied that the land will be desolate for 70 years. If you were to go back and look at chapter uh, 36 of 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 36, verses 17 through 21, well, let's just go there. We got time. I'm going to read fast. You're going to listen fast. 2 Chronicles, chapter 36, listen, verses 17 through 21. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, this is Nebuchadnezzar, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on the young man or virgin or old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand, and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and his princes, all this, these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God, and broke down all the walls of Jerusalem, and burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths all the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. You definitely can write this one down. Leviticus chapter 25, verses 1-7. through 7, God gave the instructions how every seventh year they were to give the land a rest. And it would be a Sabbath year. And they were to just live off of the ground. Whatever the ground produced, they weren't to plant and harvest and all that. They were to trust God. They were to plant and harvest for six years. But on the seventh year, they were to just live. And God was going to make it that even though they hadn't planted, even though they hadn't worked, that whatever grew up from the land that was kind of left was going to supply for them, and they were to trust him, but they didn't. They kept planting and harvesting every year because they didn't trust that God was going to provide. And they did this for so long, it kind of built up in the mind of God. In Leviticus chapter 26, go to Leviticus 26, though, and look at verses 33 through 35. If you remember Leviticus 26, it's that very familiar passage where God had told the nation of Israel before they even went into the land all the things he was going to do if they didn't obey. In verses 33 through 35, he said, I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheath the sword after you and the land shall be a desolation and your city shall be a waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate while you're in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate it shall have rest. The rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. So God had already said, give the land every seventh year a rest and I will take care of you. They didn't trust God and they kept doing it year after year after year. And it built up to the point that God said, there are 70 Sabbaths that the land should have already received and you never gave it the rest. Therefore, I'm going to take you all out of the land and I'm going to give it rest for 70 years. But remember, Nebuchadnezzar left some people in the land and they were like, hey, the land's ours. And God says, oh, no, 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 no. I said I was going to leave it desolate. It's going to be desolate. Now, in the time we have left, I have to have you notice something, though, that's interesting. If you were to go to 2 Kings 25, go to 2 Kings 25, look at verses 22 through 26. 2 Kings 25, 22 through 25. It says, and over the people who remained in the land of Judah, this is after the destruction of Jerusalem, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left, he appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, the governor. All right. So this guy Gedaliah is left in charge over the people still left in the land. There's no one left in Jerusalem. They've all been carried off. But in the land of Judah, there's people left. Gedaliah is made governor over them. Good verse 25. For the second time, jump down. Verse 25. But in the seventh month, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishama of the royal family, came with ten men and struck down Gedaliah and put him to death along with the Jews and the Chaldeans who were with him at Mizpah. Then all the people, both small and great, the captains of the forces arose and went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. So the people were left. They had a guy put over them as their governor and somebody comes and kills him, and they're so afraid, all those people that were left in the land ended up running to Egypt. What did God say? You guys think the land's yours? No, it's not yours. I already said that it's going to be desolate. But now here's the interesting thing that for the sake of time, I cannot show you by reading it to you, but I want you to write these notes down or just one passage of Scripture. Jeremiah chapter 41, verses 16 all the way through chapter 43, verse 7. Write that again. Jeremiah 41, verse 16, all the way through chapter 43, verse 7. There's an interesting little side note that we get in the book of Jeremiah about this whole episode. If we were to read it from Ezekiel, God said through Ezekiel, you guys think you're staying in the land? No, you're not. And then we see from 2 Kings and Chronicles and whatever that God had said it would be desolate and it was desolate. And those people that were left, all left. But if you were to put the scripture together, as you read that passage that I have you write down, chapter 41 and following, you'll see that Jeremiah was one of the people who had been left in the land. A lot of people don't remember that. But Jeremiah was one of the people after Nebuchadnezzar's siege who was left in the land. And the message that God said to Jeremiah, to the people, was this, stay in the land, Submit yourself to King Nebuchadnezzar, and it'll go well with you. But if you rebel, don't go to Egypt. Don't go to Egypt. So the prophet in Judah is saying, God says, stay right here. If you know the story, and that's why I want you to go read it if you don't, the scripture says clearly, they would not listen to Jeremiah. Oh, you know what they said right before They did not listen to Jeremiah. This is what they said. They all came to Jeremiah and said, Jeremiah, what's the word from the Lord? Jeremiah said, here it is. He says, stay here. Don't go to Egypt. And they didn't listen. Did you hear what Ezekiel was told at the end of our section today? He said, people love to hear you talk. They even talk amongst themselves and say, hey, let's go hear him speak. They want to hear the word of the Lord, and they they enjoy listening to you, but they don't do it. Folks, I'm just going to say this as nicely as I can. I'm grateful for over the years the people that have said, Jim, we really, really enjoy listening to you speak. Over the years as I've gone from one place to another, and people may hear me speak at a conference or something, and they say, we've forgotten how much we missed hearing you speak. In my flesh, that feels great. But my real question is, are you listening? Are you doing it? I pray that you are. And guess what? It's not my job to watch real closely and see if you are. I'm supposed to just share with you what the word says. But let me challenge you. Don't just be hearers of the word. Be doers. I love you. We'll see you next week.